from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. May God be pleased with the reading of his word. Please be seated. I want to start this morning, I want you to listen to this excerpt from a U.S. newspaper objecting to new trends in church music. There are several reasons for opposing it. One, it's too new. Two, it's often worldly, even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style. Because there are so many songs, you can't learn them all. It puts too much emphasis on the instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. This new music creates disturbances by making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generation got along without it. It's a money-making scheme, and some of these new music upstarts are lewd and loose. This sound a little familiar to some of the... Arguments we sometimes hear today about newer songs. Well, hold on to your hats. This newspaper was actually a reproduced for an article that was written by a pastor in 1723, attacking none other than Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer of such hymns as When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Joy to the World, and our God in help, uh, our God, uh, oh God, our help in ages past. That's what he's complaining about. The same type of criticisms that were leveled at uh, that at this Christmas carol that we just sang, uh, while shepherds watched their flocks at night. This hymn was written by Nahum Tate in the 1600s, and he parted from the norm of the day. See, unaccompanied psalm singing was the norm. John Calvin felt that the hymn book, the Genevan Psalter, was all that was needed for singing in public worship. And this hymn was somewhat revolutionary because it was based on a new book or a new translation, this new King James Version of 1611. Tate's new hymn was not greeted enthusiastically and received a lot of criticism. And just as today's singers develop affection for the usual hymns and do not appreciate changes, uh, many of Tate's day loved the 150-year-old psalms 
even though they were kind of clunky and did not take kindly to his work. So he had to respond in writing, and he wrote, Faithfulness to the original scripture must be balanced by elegance in music. Eventually, it was not all, this hymn was not only accepted, it became a standard of the Christmas worship carols. So this idea of worship wards is nothing new to our century. As I may mention, this is, this is one carol that sticks very, very closely to the actual scriptures. The first phrase, you know, as I, as I read the scriptures, you probably were just thinking of what we just sang because it's almost identical. While shepherds watch their flocks by night. Who are these shepherds? Now, if you were here this morning for the kids' program, you saw a lot of shepherds up here. All right, they kind of told you a little bit about shepherds. All right, uh, but why were these shepherds brought into this Advent scenario? In Israel, there are apparently two types of shepherds. The first, well, are ones we think of right away. The rough, outdoor type, they need to be brave to fend off bear and lion, yet gentle enough to care for the lambs. Because the work was dirty in nature, and that work made them unclean according to the religious establishment, and they were considered unclean, and uh, they were also considered dishonest. And though they were necessary to have them, they were often marginalized from society. However, there was a second group of shepherds, and these were what were called temple shepherds. These shepherds specifically raised sheep for the temple sacrifices. You see, there was, as the Jewish Talmud states, all livestock found in the area surrounding Jerusalem, as far as Migdal Eder, were deemed to be holy and consecrated and can only be used with sacrifices in the temple, in particular for the peace and Passover sacrifices. All around Jerusalem, for about a mile or two, there was a circle, and within that circle, all the flocks were considered to be sacred. To the south of Jerusalem, in the direction of Bethlehem, Bethlehem was only about five miles away from Jerusalem, there stood a stone tower that's called the Migdal Eder, or translated the Tower of the Flock. And this was a place set apart where these temple shepherds would bring sacrificial sheep to birth. And there is very good reason to believe that it was in the Tower of the Flock that Jesus was born. First, these lambs had to meet strict requirements of the law have no blemish or injury because they would be used for peace and Passover sacrifice. And these shepherds would take the ewes into this tower of the flock, away from the herd, and carefully monitor the delivery. And once delivered, they would quickly scoop up the lamb, clean it up, inspect it for blemishes, and then wrap it in swaddling clothes. All right, stay with me now, all right? For warmth and protection and lay them in a special manger that would restrict their movements. Secondly, this would fulfill two prophecies of Micah. In Micah 5.2, which uh, uh, Mark read earlier, we have the well-known prophecy of the Messiah coming to Bethlehem that was written 700 years before he actually came. 
But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, that's quite a prophecy in and of itself. That would be like trying to tell who is going to be the president of the United States 700 years from now, and where will they be born? That's how accurate the prophecy was. But there's also a second prophecy in Micah. And it was found in chapter 4, verse 8. It reads, As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. The tower of the flock. It is mentioned as a place where the king or the kingship will come from. So being born in the tower of the flock makes a lot of sense. And thirdly, the directions the angel gives could only mean one place to these shepherds. There were many mangers in Bethlehem. So how did they know which one to go to? Well, two clues were a road map for these shepherds. First, the mention of the swaddling clothes, because that's what they did. These shepherds of the sacrificial lambs swaddled the newborn lambs in these clothes. But they only did this in one place. And the manger, you'll find him in a manger. In the Greek, the article A is not there. It just says, simply reads, lying in manger. And this can only mean one place to those shepherds. Swaddling clothes and manger, put two and two together, it was the tower. And while these shepherds may have at the moment been watching flocks a little nearer to Jerusalem, they immediately put two and two together and they said, they, let us go and hurry off to Bethlehem. So it makes a lot of sense. These shepherds were experts in handling Passover lambs. And the symbolism hardly needs to be discussed. Jesus was born to be our Passover lamb. The Apostle Paul states so in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the peace, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The carol then goes on to speak of the angel of the Lord coming down in terrifying glory. And this is why the angel's first words are fear not. And this is always the way when the divine breaks into the human and people are, are exposed to the glory. They're terrified. I mean, think about it. If you walked into your living room today and there was this glowing angel, you'd be kept terrified too. That's why they always say, fear not. Because the angel says, I have glad tidings of great joy to bring. And the angel proceeds to make the joyous announcement. To you, in David's town, this day is born of David's line, the Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this shall be the sign. Here is stated the glad tidings of Christmas, the true meaning of Christmas, the profound truth of Christmas. To you, this day, a Savior 
has been born. You know, we have this picture of Christmas. And our picture of Christmas is a typical Courier and Ives postcard, right? We have soft snow, okay? We have gentle Mary and cuddling the baby. We have well-behaved animals in the background. Uh, angels singing, shepherds smiling, all nice, warm, and toasty while we sit by the, the Yule log. But, you know, the reality was very much different. And so different that most people don't even want to be reminded of the truth. Christmas is about a Savior. And it's glad news because we need to be saved. Which means that we're lost. See why people get a little uncomfortable? They'd much rather talk about Santa Claus. We needed to be rescued. And you know, Scripture gives us another picture of Christmas, far different. And it will make us uncomfortable because it's so different than what we are used to thinking about. You see, we only see the front. But Scripture gives us a glimpse by pulling the curtain back and showing us the spiritual world of what was going on. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter. And the child was snatched up by God into his throne. The woman fled to the wilderness. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and the angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough. And he was, they lost their place in heaven. The dra dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the world astray. He was hurled to earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was rescued from all that, but the earth helped the woman. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. It's from Revelation 12. Scripture pulls back that curtain. We don't see a courier in Ives postcard, do we? No, but rather we see something like a, a D-Day documentary. Spiritually speaking, Christmas was about war. The dragon, Satan, wanted to destroy Christ. He was waiting for Christ. There was war going on. The angels' declaration of glad tidings ought to be held in a similar fashion to the way the, the French and the Belgians took the announcement that the Allies had landed. Their rescue, their liberation,
had begun. And Colossians 1.13 tells us, For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. For us, the Savior has arrived. As one person wrote, Savior, that word is the brightest jewel in the message of Christmas. Oh, what joy to speak it to a world of sinners, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to the bondsmen of Satan among the Gentiles. Here is your Savior. Accept His salvation. Here is your healer. Despise not the remedy. We need a Savior. Our sins have separated us from the Holy God. And because of our sins, we deserve to be punished by that Holy God and cast into hell. But that Holy God is also a loving God whose purpose is to rescue His sinful children from the kingdom of darkness and sin and bring us into the kingdom of light and life through His Son and restore peace between us and himself. And this was the angel's song. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And this verse is from the NIV translation, and it's more accurate, but less known, than the King James Version, which reads, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to men. See, the King James Version puts the emphasis on the earth, Peace on the earth and on earth peace, comma. And then goodwill towards men. And yet, we all know, year after year, we see the reality there's no peace on earth. Or as another carol states, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. However, the NIV accurately places the peace upon those on whom his favor rests. This is a truth that most people seldom reflect upon, and that is the need for peace with God. Talk to almost anyone who is not a believer, and they would say something like, I'm trying my best. I'm, I'm living a, a decent life. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm a good provider, a family man, a woman. And in that frame of mind, they, they, they feel a false sense of security, thinking that God's okay with them. They never see God as He truly is. That between them and God is enmity. They are enemies. In his book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, he writes a chapter entitled On Distorting the Love of God, about how our culture has done just that, finding definitions of love more from Hollywood movies than Scripture. He states that such a view, it has far more connections with the New Age, Pollyanna-ish optimism than anything substantive. Suddenly, the Christian doctrine of the love of God becomes difficult for the entire framework in which it is set in Scripture has been replaced. 
To put it another way, we live in a culture in which many truths about God are widely disbelieved. I do not think that what the Bible says about the love of God can long survive if it is abstracted from the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the providence of God, or the personhood of God. The result, of course, is that the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. Nowadays, if you tell people that God loves them, they are likely, unlikely to be surprised. Of course God loves me. He's like that, isn't he? Besides, shouldn't he love me? I'm kind of cute, or at least nice as the next person. I'm okay, you're okay. God loves you and me. It, it has not always been that way. In the past, the preaching of the love of God came as wonderful news. So while the world may yawn with indifference at, on peace, Now, on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Believers are filled with joyful gratitude to God. For they recognize that at one time, we were enemies. Psalm 11.5, The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. It's not just the Old Testament, New Testament verses. Colossians 1.21, this includes you who were once so far away from God. You were his enemies and hated him, and you were separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Romans 5.10, and since when you were his enemies, Ephesians 2.1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Like the rest, you were by nature deserving of wrath. You see, outside of Christ, no matter how good you think you are, how good you might be according to the earth's standard, outside of Christ, you are God's enemy. And that is why this pronouncement of the angels is such astonishingly good tidings, glad tidings, because now we can have peace with God. While the world sings expected grace, John Newton understood the wonder of the glad tidings when he wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. For God's favor leads to salvation, to being rescued and being restored to a relationship with God through Christ Jesus. One of Jesus' first acts of ministry was standing up in the synagogue to read from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is the Lord's favor? It's simply the undeserved kindness of God. God, in his sovereignty and goodwill towards his children, chooses at his own initiative to show undeserved kindness to people. It is God's grace towards all creation. God's favor 
may be in a general and common sense. Matthew 5.45, he causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's common grace. Mark 16.15, and he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The daily sustaining of the earth and the external call of the gospel to all, these are signs of God's favor in a general sense. Yet Scripture tells us in Romans 3.11, no one seeks after God. Not one. And therefore, the external call of the gospel is ignored and neglected and disparaged. But Scripture also shows us that God's favor in a particular sense. We see this in the Old Testament in Israel, Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. In the New Testament, Jesus says similar things. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit. In John 6:44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Therefore, God must first birth faith within in order to believe and be saved. As in Acts 16:14, we read of Lydia when Paul writes, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. There were many women with Lydia, but Lydia was favored by God. And in fully embracing Christ as a Savior, she found peace with God. And so anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord in sincerity does so because of God's work in their heart to believe. And upon believing, a person standing before God dramatically changes. Dramatically and eternally changes. From, from enemies, we're now considered friends, adopted children, co-heirs with Christ. And therefore, the angel's words, fear not, become our words. Because I have peace with God, I have no fear of God. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through Christ Jesus. Romans 8, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. By grace, by God's favor, we are now at peace with God and we will never, ever face condemnation because Christ has saved us from it. This is what Christmas is about. This is the Savior of whom we celebrate. Let me go back and read the full verses now. I read them just the part where it said that we were their enemy, God's enemy. Let me read the whole verse. Colossians 1, 21, 22. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now 
He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free of accusation. Romans 5:10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Ephesians 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we are dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Is it any wonder that when these shepherds found that baby Jesus in verses 17 and 18, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard. The Messiah had come. Peace with God through Jesus had come. And it was incredibly good news. It was glad tidings. And so much so that these shepherds could not keep it to themselves. They had to go out and spread the news. The Savior had been born. Peace with God was possible. How about us? Yes, let us celebrate the festivities of Christmas. But let us not forget the true meaning of Christmas. The real glad tidings of what Christmas means. A Savior has been born. And we all need the Savior. The Savior has been born to you. Put your name there. Savior has been born to Bob. Is he your Savior? You know the Christmas story. You hear it every year. But is he your Savior? Have you made that commitment? Do you recognize your need of the Savior? That your sins have separated you from God, and the fact is there is no peace between you and God. You may think so, but according to his word, it's not. It's not there. And you stand in judgment. And only when you give your heart, when you call upon the name of the Lord, repent of your sins and ask him to come into your life, commit your life to him, follow him to be baptized, and follow him in obedience, that is the way. You become saved. Question is, 
Savior has been born. Is that glad tidings to you? I know it is to me. I hope it is to you. Let's, let's pray. Our Father and our God, how we rejoice in you. And we thank you, Lord, for this message that the Savior has come. And Lord, we thank you because we need a Savior. We cannot be saved without him by putting our faith and trust in him. We pray, Lord, that you would keep that alive in our hearts. Even in the the busyness and the festivities of Christmas, help us remember that behind the curtain so much was going on. That your son came into this dark world to liberate us and to rescue us from our sin and from Satan. Of course, he loved us. And he was here to save us. We thank you for that, Lord. And I pray if there's anyone in this auditorium who's not made that commitment, Lord, that they would do it right now. In their hearts, call upon the Lord. Lord, I'm a sinner. Save me. I turn over my life to you. And Lord, we rejoice in knowing that that has happened. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.